values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. One of the stories that Arizona will probably never forget is the uh, the death of Kayla Mueller and how uh, how this young girl had uh, worked in a humanitarian effort. She was working for Doctors Without Borders and was taken captive by ISIS terrorists and, and lost her life 18 months later. And I was able to have a conversation with her parents during that time a long time ago. And now uh, the sentencing of, of that one of the people involved in this happened and the Mueller's were there and they join us now. Uh, Mr. Mrs. Mueller, uh, thank you again for being willing to talk to the audience. Yes, thank you for having us. Um, I, I want to ask just a couple of questions, and I hope they're not too personal. But can you can you try to explain what it would be like to sit in the courtroom with one of the people that you know uh, treated your daughter so horribly? Well, it's it's hard to explain um, the torture and the torment that Taylor went through, and when we're sitting there looking at the person that uh, that did that to her, um, it was extremely difficult to control your emotions and uh, and get through it. It really was. It's hard to hard to explain. You can't. I don't think you can understand unless you've lived it. It is. Um uh, reading a news story today, uh, it says that during uh, the prosecution, the sentencing phase of this, that the prosecution was reading letters that uh, Kayla had – one of the letters was a letter that she had written to the two of you. And I just want to read a quote from that letter. Uh, the thought of your pain is the source of my own. Simultaneously, the hope of our reunion is the source of, source of my strength. Um, was Kayla always that strong? Uh, yes, she truly was. Um, she she just had this gift to see people um, with very clear eyes, and she saw we're all God's children, and she wanted to learn from others, and she wanted to help others see her points of view, but not, but in a gentle way, um, to just kind of figure out how we can all work together. Um, she she truly had this love for the Lord. Um, she also told us when she was working in India, she sent us a note and said that, uh, I find God in the suffering eyes reflected in mine. If this is how you're revealed to me, this is how I will forever seek you. So uh, she just had a gift. Yeah, she was, she was always that strong, even when she was young. She journaled constantly and on a plane flight. Not, I don't remember where she was headed, but she wrote in one of her journals, here I am doing exactly what I want to do, and my parents are proud of me. Mm-hmm. She was so happy to be able to help others and to go into the world and and do what she intended to do, and that was help people. It would be... It would be the prayer of everyone, I would think, that the memories you have will be of her goodness. But are you – how do you balance the memories of the goodness of Kayla against the brutality that she faced? How do you reconcile that as people of faith? That's, that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, over the years, we've tried to be more accepting of what has happened. Um, It has been difficult because when we look back, and you always have to look back because you've got to learn from mistakes. When we look back, we see so many things that should have not happened and how we should have done things differently. 
Um, but now we just go forward, and our goal is to bring her home. And we've got some wonderful people helping us. Um, we just talked to someone just a few minutes ago about that who is helping us. So I think that's what keeps us going. Carl and Marshall Mueller are joining us, the parents of Kayla Mueller. Um, uh, having suffered this kind of loss, I know it never gets easier. Um, but does this sentencing and, and being in that courtroom and, and facing this person, is it helping you turn a page? Well, I think that's a good way to put it. It, it's, it may be a chapter because this has been going on since those guys were captured in 2018. So it is a big portion of what we've been going through. So it did close that chapter. Um, but we continue uh, every day almost to try to find out what truly happened to Kayla because we don't know and where she is because we want to bring her home to Arizona. And we have many people, as Marcia said, helping us do that. We have established quite a, a collection of, of people, just like yourself, Mike. When, when people hear about Kayla, they reach out to us. Um, has the has our and I don't want to make this political has the government it doesn't matter what political party has the government been any assistance at all in trying to bring her home well we continue to, to work on that and they are uh, getting much better uh, we're in the middle of negotiations on a topic that I can't really discuss at this time with the, the government um, so they have gotten a lot better we're working closely with the FBI now um, can you talk about the community outpouring? You know, Arizona is seems like even though we're living down here in the valley, it's it's a very big city, but it still seems like a small town. And where you are, can you talk about the outpouring of support from here in Arizona and around the world, probably, and what it's meant to your family? Oh my! <laughs> Thinking of that makes me cry. Um, I don't. We have had. So many people from the very beginning, as soon as they heard about Kayla's death or supposed death, go forth and just keep coming to us. Um, I don't. I don't even know how to explain that. It's just. Uh, it just fills my heart with joy, and it would Kayla too, because she she worried so much about what we were going through, and I think that would would help her see that we we are taken care of. Yeah. People have reached out from all over the country. Uh, here in Prescott, it's, it's been wonderful. This, this town is so fortunate to have the philanthropists that we have. My Kiwanis Club I've been a member of for many, many years built a playground called Kayla's Hands. Uh, it's an extremely, extremely nice playground. I think we spent $365,000 to build this playground. So. That has been very uh, uplifting for us and encouraging for us, the, all of the support from everyone. Bill O'Reilly's new book, Killing the Killers, a gentleman from Colorado read it and reached out to us. A local gentleman did the same here. So it's, there's always, like I said, there's always people that hear about Kayla and they reach out to us. And a lot of them know things that help us you know, continue to, to search for her. You know, when, um, my brother was lost in Iraq early in the war in 2003, and I watched my mother walk the walk of uh, the, the, the two of you are. And I can't explain um, 
how humbled I am at the strength of parents who can suffer such loss. And we had to have that kind of an expectation because he was a soldier. But your daughter was such a kind-hearted humanitarian. It must have been such a shock to you. Can you talk about where your strength comes from? Do you feel like you're strong people because the world sees you as such a strong couple? Well, sometimes I I wonder about that myself, Mike. Um, you know, we have each other, and and uh, we, we stay strong for Kayla. We continue, as I said, to try to find Kayla. And um, as as Judge Ellis said uh, at the end of the sentencing the other day, so this case is a significant episode in the history of our country. Uh, it must stand as a beacon and a warning to others. And we do a lot of this so that people stay aware of the evil and the depravity in the world, and people need to be aware of it, and the government needs to be aware of it. And they learned a lot with the, the, the hostage, the American hostages, uh, and they've changed. But unfortunately, the, the price of that education was the life of four Americans. Um, again, thank you both for being so gracious and, and with your time and talking about a subject I know is so difficult for you. Um, I hope to have you back. You are you have been such an inspiration to me personally and so many others. When your names come up, when when Kayla's name comes up, I just want you to know the community always talks about the strength of Kayla and the goodness of your family. And I hope I hope that's at least meaningful in some regard to you. That surely is. Thank you. Absolutely, it does. And we'd we'd love to come back. As I said, it's a never-ending process, and uh, something new is is always coming up to discuss. So that'd be great. All right. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Uh, That is Carl and Marsha Mueller, uh, the parents of Kayla Mueller, uh, to to face what they have faced in life and to be as gracious as they are is a strength that I think all of us could only aspire to. What a what an amazing couple, um, an amazing story of young Kayla's life Uh, coming up in a moment. We're going to get you updated on the latest of what's happening with the uh, raid of the former president's home. We'll be right back. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here as the uh, the saga rolls along, as we learn more and we start to hear more uh, about uh, what happened at, at Mar-a-Lago and the FBI going in with a search warrant and what happened. Remember that the uh, the White House said they had no knowledge beforehand of any of this happening. And everyone I talked to who has been involved with any kind of investigation like this at a very high level said there's no way that that's true, that the White House absolutely knew what was going on. So if we have a quest for the truth and we don't want to be lied to on your side of the aisle, uh, it goes both ways. So I want you to hear this is from Just the News. They've obtained the memo, according to them, and this is part of it. We have new evidence. Uh, Just the News has obtained correspondence between various parties during the uh, lead up to the raid, showing that the Biden White House, that's right, the Biden, Joe Biden's White House, the one that said they had nothing to do with this, they were deeply involved in the early instigation of the criminal probe against President Trump, including uh, clearing the way for the uh, uh, 
President President Trump's claim of executive privilege to be eviscerated, basically uh, getting rid of his executive privilege before he could contest it. That occurred just before a grand jury started delivering subpoenas, looking for the record. So for the first time, we now have evidence that Joe Biden's White House was in the middle of this right from the start, way before the Mar-a-Lago raid, even before a grand jury delivered a subpoena uh, to the president in May of this year. So let's just pause for a moment. Again, I have withheld any judgment on whether or not the former president um, is guilty of anything until we see the evidence that had been gathered from his home. He has asked for a special master to get involved in this, and he doesn't trust the Justice Department, and I don't blame him. Um, And again, to be fair, if we're all going to be fair in all of these conversations, and I think we all strive to be, you have to think about what you would have done if it was the other way around. When Donald Trump was elected president, and he beat Hillary Clinton. It was contentious. It got ugly between the two of them, and it stayed ugly between the two of them. And if uh, if Donald Trump had directed the Justice Department or or had been involved in what it appeared these memos of Donald Trump uh, instigating some kind of investigation that led to a search warrant at the home of the Clintons, there would be cries of abuse of power and weaponization of the Department of Justice, but certainly the FBI. So before you jump to any other conclusion. Let's start there. At least be fair in your thought process. The Biden administration said they had no knowledge. We now know that that is absolutely false. There's more details on these memos. This is a letter that the National Archives sent to President Trump's lawyers on uh, May 10th. And what it shows, Congressman, is that uh, back in April, the White House approved sending the 15 boxes that Donald Trump had at his home to the FBI, initiating the criminal investigation. And then a few weeks later saying, uh, you, the archives, you can waive President Trump's privilege. We, the President Biden, will not protect his privilege. Go ahead and do it if you want. And that allowed wow. uh, the, a grand jury to drop a subpoena and the President Trump's team not to be able to contest the subpoena using executive privilege. So there is so much of this to unbox, uh, no pun intended. There is so much of this to unravel and moving forward. And just because this is proven to be true doesn't mean that President Trump is innocent. At the same time, no one can believe anymore that the White House had no knowledge of this, according to what these letters are said that were sent to the Trump lawyers, that the White House was in on trying to strip the president of his privilege, allowing the pathway for this to happen. Now, you may believe that's the right thing to do. But it's not the right thing to to lie about it and say that you had no knowledge. You had no idea that this was going to happen. This is where I said I'm reserving judgment because I'm not looking at the nobility of just trying to get to the truth of what's happening from the Biden administration or Merrick Garland in the Justice Department or anybody else after what we've seen happen with the weaponization and the politicization of everything that happens around us. If you're angry about it on the right, you have to be angry about it when it happens on the left and vice versa. And until the American people stand up and say, grow up and act like adults, this will continue. And this is a long way from over. I'm not calling the president, the former president, exonerated by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not saying he's innocent. We don't know. But we now know that the White House flat out lied about not only having knowledge, but playing a role in this. So, you know, this is uh, uh, we'll see. I mean, I know what social media is going to look like. Social media is going to be nothing but an excuse machine. That's for sure. And that's where uh, that's why I love social media, because it isn't a real place in a moment. um, Not enough water here in Arizona. Uh, But if you're a celebrity in California, you know, the environmentally conscious people that want everything green. uh, Well, what are they doing? 
We'll talk about that coming up in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, you're welcome. Now you never get that song out of your head. Rick Rolled on a Tuesday. Uh, thanks for being with us for a short part of your morning, at least. The Bureau of Reclamation had given states and tribes until August 15th to find a way to conserve two to four million more acre feet of water to stabilize the drought-stricken river. Uh, the deadline passed with no agreement in place. On Tuesday, the government presented its 2023 water forecasts, and we know what happened. Arizona is going to lose a lot of water, especially when it comes to agriculture. Pinal County farmers are in trouble. Food supply could be an issue again, as we are not going to be growing as many crops because of this. And this is where I find, and I have, a, I love the conversation about environmentalism. I consider myself an environmentalist, meaning I want clean air. I want clean water. When I travel, when I get to travel north, especially in Arizona, whether it's up in the Prescott area, up in Cornville, uh, you know, Sedona, how beautiful it is in Oak Creek Canyon. Or if you go in the other direction, I love the White Mountains. Going up into the White Mountains in Arizona is such a treat for me when I'm able to do it. Um, that part of the state, Taylor and, and Springerville and Sholo, it, it's Snowflake. Those areas are beautiful. Heburn, Overgard. Um, it's just such a beautiful part of our state, and I want to see it maintained. The herds should be maintained. To see of if you've not ever seen a herd of elk, it's an amazing sight. And so they are. And, and I will tell you, it's the hunters and the anglers that are the true environmentalists, the ones for generations that have been hunting the land in Arizona that want the land to be preserved and the herds to thrive for the stories that they gather with their families as fathers take their sons and daughters and uh, parents. Take Take their kids and their grandkids, and um, those are the real environmentalists. The people that stand on a soapbox and scream about your carbon footprint, then climb on a private jet, I've got no use for. I have no use for those people. So I, I preface, I say that as a preface to this. Here is the headline: L.A. celebrities ignore drought and exceed water rations for pools and landscaping. Just let it sink in for a moment. The the hardcore environmentalists, the ones that support PETA and the ones that um, are going to scream at you about your carbon footprint and the ones that are donating money to radical environmental organizations, they won't even shut the water off on their lawns one day a week. As a third year of punishing drought leaves farmers without water and homes on strict rations, Los Angeles celebrities are still keeping their massive lawns green and swimming pools filled. Sylvester Stallone, Kevin Hart, Dwayne Wade, and the Kardashians are some of the big-name celebrities who have been issued notices of exceedance by their local water district, the Los Angeles Times has reported. I got nothing against any of them personally, but here we are being preached to by people that – and I don't know if any of them specifically are the preachers, but we are preached to by celebrities using their platform, which I think is a great thing to do. If you're able to use your platform for the betterment of society, it's the only reason why a platform is worthwhile. You know what I mean? It, 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 to have a platform um, or some level of celebrity would be meaningless unless you could use it for good. 
But when you spend your life preaching to people about what they need to do to make the earth a better place, the story yesterday about Steven Spielberg, I got nothing against Spielberg, great director. As a matter of fact, I believe he's from Arizona. I think he went to Arcadia High School. Yeah, and so Spielberg's from Arizona. He's an Arizona guy. Got nothing against him personally. But when they preach about environmentalism and he has burned $116,000 worth of jet fuel in a month. When John Kerry travels the world preaching to the world about a carbon footprint on a private aircraft. The same with Prince Charles. All of these people that flew to Davos to that convention that was about environmentalism and carbon footprints and what we do about going green, and every one of them took their own plane. They didn't even meet in New York and fly together on one plane. They took their own airplane. So I'm not going to be preached to by those people. I'm not going to be preached to. So here we are in Arizona, and we have done such a fantastic job of – Conserving water and preparing for the worst, preparing for growth, knowing we live in a desert. We have done a much better job than California. You know, and when you look at the way the world perceives everything, especially California, California looks at Arizona kind of like we're the hayseeds. You know what I mean? We're kind of the the rednecks of the Western United States. And they look at us kind of like, you know, those kind of dumb people in Arizona. They just don't get it. We're the elites. We're the smarter of you, our education system. And we masked everybody and shut down our restaurants forever. And the Arizona governor opened things up way too soon. And all of this elitist behavior. You go and look at the – just on water alone, you go and look at the conservation record of California as a whole – And Arizona, and it's not even close, but because of the negotiation that had to happen, because California is the big state that it is, when the uh, uh, Central Arizona Project, the CAP agreement was made, California is the last one that gets, gets any restrictions. Arizona, we get bit first. So here we have farmers and ranchers in Pinal County especially. Most people aren't going to feel it in their everyday lives right now at least. So you're not going to get restrictions, mandatory restrictions here. But even here, we're doing the right thing. I've backed off how I water my lawn. Most people have. People are conserving. You know, they use uh, uh, low-flow or no-flow toilets. They, a lot of things people are doing to conserve water. Lots of things. And we've done an excellent job as a state to conserve water. California has not. And now we got the farmers and ranchers in Pinal County are going to not be able to grow crops. All of this stuff is going to take a big bite out of the Pinal County economy. It's going to take a big bite out of the farmer's economy. All of that is true. While in California, they're supposed to be the environmentally conscious group. You've got all these celebrities that are getting notifications that they're using too much water, watering their lawns and filling their swimming pools. So I won't be preached to. And this is why. When they when they ground their airplanes because of their own personal carbon footprint, I'll listen to what they have to say. I might not agree still, but at least I'll listen. Until then, stop preaching. Until you're going to practice it, stop preaching it. And they absolutely don't. In a moment, we're going to talk about schools and what is going on in Utah is something you need to hear. And in L.A. schools, how many people are fleeing the public school system? We're going to talk about that coming up in just a few moments.
strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time with us. Coming up just after 10 o'clock, we are going to talk about the suffering. How are people in America dealing with today's economy? We'll talk about that and tell you about possible, probable layoffs in corporate America as half of American companies are talking about uh, slashing jobs, which would be uh, a a sad thing for our economy. All that's coming up just after 10 o'clock. But let's talk about schools. About 36,000 L.A. Unified students are missing from the first week of school. So uh, data shows that 89% of students attended the first day of school on Monday. The number rose slightly to 91.8 the following day, climbed to 92.8 on Wednesday, um, before it fell down back down to 91.9 on Friday. This makes an average attendance of 91.7 for the first week of school. More insane public schools were about COVID. The more insane public schools were about COVID, the more parents abandoned them. just reading headlines. Um, Utah teacher. This is the one I love. The a Utah teacher questions whether posh white parents will oppose her classroom built for non-white students. So a fourth grade teacher, for the first time in my life, I'm going to be teaching at a majority white school. And I'm kind of interested to see how students and parents react to my classroom or if they'll even notice anything about it because it's built for non-white students. You know, the, the racist element of our society is uh, it, it's really funny what we're doing here. When you go back and I, I am a product of busing, desegregation, all of that happened when I was a kid. Um, I grew up in a weird way, in a weird time. I grew up in the South in the late 1970s and the early 1980s. But I also played sports where there was no racism when I was playing sports. What I mean by that is people probably had their own feelings uh, about other races of people. But the way it played out was if you were capable, if you helped the team win, there was no quota. There was no ratio of white to black to Hispanic to Asian players on a team. It was a competition. And it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I was never going to be a great football star. But I played on a 12-year-old football team that cut half the kids that tried out. I mean, you were in tears if you didn't make this team, and it was just like American Idol, man. They just told you, nope, not this season, son. Take care, and off you went. I also look – if you want to take a look back at the weirdness of the time I grew up in, I played for an organization called the Fort Myers Rebels. Um, and it was our mascot was a Confederate soldier. We were the Fort Myers Rebels. We were a, a powerhouse in the nation, uh, won national championships at a couple of different divisions. I was teammates for two seasons with Deion Sanders. So Deion and I were teammates in the, the uh, what they called the Peewee division and then the junior midget division um, of the Fort Myers Rebels. So there are pictures that exist in the late 1970s of us in team pictures wearing a blue blazer with a Confederate soldier sewn onto the pocket. So there is somewhere, I'm sure, pictures of Deion Sanders wearing a Confederate soldier on his blazer. Now, nobody back then would have even considered that that was racially motivated. That would never exist now in the 21st century. That organization has changed its name multiple times over. But – Nobody cared what color Dion's skin was. Like, they didn't care what mine was. I played when I gave us a chance at winning. I played sporadically compared to guys like Dion Sanders, and nobody cared. We wanted to watch Dion get the ball and watch Dion score. He was a man uh, among boys, even at the age of 12. 
I watched Edgar and James come out of a very poor migrant community called Immokalee, Florida. And I watched Edgar and James grow into a great high school player, play for the Miami Hurricanes, and then go on and have a Hall of Fame career in the NFL. Nobody cared what his skin color was. But we grew up in a time where skin color mattered. We grew up in a time where there were two sets of rules. There were unwritten rules, but there were two sets of rules. We were all aware of it. And a lot of that has changed, and thank God for it. But there were people that had – there was a, a road in our town named Anderson Avenue when I was a kid. Anderson Avenue was renamed MLK Boulevard, and it was a source of pride in the black community, and it was a hard-fought victory for them to have that street renamed. And it's happened in streets across this country. But there was a fight in the 1960s moving into the 70s of desegregation and equality where children of color had the right to the same education to be treated like white children in schools. And there was a lot of blood shed for that, not just sweat and tears, but there was actual blood shed to make those things happen in education. For, for black students to cross into colleges with white students and desegregate colleges to make sure that black students had, had an, a, a chance at an education. And it's shameful to me now that we're going in the other direction. That This is, a, 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 from what it looks to me, a white teacher. I can't really tell by the picture. But you've got teachers that are now uh, marginalizing white students. We're going in reverse. ASU, thank God the way they handled it, those two black students that went after white students – in a common area, um, telling them that they shouldn't be there. And uh, because it was a safe space and they felt endangered. Imagine white students, and this is how it used to be. When white people will tell, would tell black patrons in a restaurant, go sit in your own section. Don't sit here with us. You can't use that water fountain. You can't use that restroom. You can't sleep in that hotel. That was the way of the world, and it was wrong then, and it's wrong now. It is wrong to say, I've got a classroom set up for non-white students. It's a horrible precedent to set. This is, this is getting completely out of hand. You want to know why people are abandoning the school system? Because they don't want their children brought up that way. Because they want their children to have an opportunity to learn, to have a real education, to be able to read and to write and decipher things on their own. And instead, this is what we're injecting into our classrooms. Teachers like this should be fired. If this were a white teacher saying this is a white-only classroom, they'd fire that teacher. And if it's good one way, it's got to be good both ways. This, this idea of separating kids and demonizing, and it's just the wrong thing to do. And we're not educating our children. And I will never, ever stop harping on this until it ends. Just after 10 o'clock, we go back to talking about the economy. You're going to hear an ABC News report about jobs being cut. Are we on the verge of seeing that happen and what will it do to the economy? All coming up.